Good morning. Flashback six years ago, we're sitting in a doctor's office. Um, Amy is pregnant with our, we don't know it's a how we know it's a boy because he's here. But she's sitting in that doctor's office um, going in for a sonogram, and it's our first one. And the doctor begins to do the thing, and he goes, well, it's actually the midwife, and the midwife looks at us and goes, oh, I need to go get the doctor. And you're like, as a first-time parent, like, dad, I was like, what? What are you, why? It's like, I think there might be two babies. And I hit the wall and began to slide down. I was glad we were having the first, but two? Oh, man. Like, you immediately, if, as, you, as a dad, you start thinking college. I start thinking I'll never sleep again. I started thinking I'm going to lose all of my hair, not just some of it. It's going to happen. And so she ran out, ran out and got the doctor. The doctor comes in, does some investigating, and as you can tell, the story goes, there was just one. And there was a heart beating. Oh, my gosh. A heart beating. Something that God had orchestrated through two people, and it's a miracle. And the heart was beating. And you just sit there, and you, you can maybe ask this question, like, how can you not believe in God? Cells multiplying, all of a sudden life starts, a heart is beating. How can you not believe in God? Out of nothing, something. How can you not believe in God? And we see it. We've been going through the I am statements. And here is Jesus proclaiming, I am, which he's saying, I'm God. And he's saying, I am the bread of life, which shows who Jesus is. We can't believe in our own, the Jesus of our own understanding. We've got to believe in the Jesus that's actually revealed in the scriptures. Okay? That's the Jesus we have to believe. Not only that, he goes on and he gives us who he is. And if you would, John 6, verse 35, it begins, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. So he's, Jesus said, I'm the bread, but you've seen me, and you don't believe. How can that be? It's just like seeing the heartbeat and saying, how can you not believe? You're seeing Jesus, the Son of God. How can you not believe? And we go on. It says, I'm the bread. And verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but I will raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So I'm the bread. How can people not believe? And then verse 45, some of the Jews grumbled. You've heard grumbling before. You've probably heard it. You've heard it at, we're not getting into football season, you will hear grumbling and complaining, grumbling about your head football coach, grumbling about the quarterback, saying there's another quarterback on the bench who can do better than that. Everybody's favorite quarterback when the team is struggling is the one on the bench, right? That's always the case. 
And so what we have, we have grumbling and complaining. Jesus saying, I'm the bread, grumbling, complaining of the Jews. In verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Verse 42 says, and they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he know? Say, I have come down from heaven. Jesus answered them, don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is imperative to understanding this passage is verse 44. Okay, so if you got a highlighter, pen, got an app on your phone, you need to highlight this. We're going to come back to this verse, but this is a very important verse. That Verse 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, not that everyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. In verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of the bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Remember, they're not, they're now they're, they're grumbling and now they're disputing, which is, they're getting angry. How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? Which is a weird thing. If you were to go down, and I've talked about this before, if you were to go down to Memphis or go down to downtown Nashville and you saw some guy on the street and he was like, eat my flesh and drink my blood and you'll have eternal life, that's weird, Right? And Jesus is saying this to these people. He's obviously, he's obviously using symbolic language, okay? Obviously. Obviously using that type of language. He, he's trying to get them to understand a deeper point. They won't, so they're grumbling and complaining. And they said, man, the Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And this is the bread come down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, that's a lengthy passage, but what you see here is this. Jesus is proclaiming that he is the bread of life. He's telling that he is the only way to have life. Faith in him is the only way to have life. He's explaining, using this image, who he is as a person. He's showing that he is the God-man. And as he is doing this, his, his explanation is accompanied by signs, one of which immediately precedes this section of discourse in which he talks. And you remember what that was? He took the kids' meal, and he fed over 5,000 people, okay? And remember, when we think about the miracles of Jesus, this is not like some kind of sleight of hand, okay? It's not like, behold the amazing Jesus. He's not auditioning for a Vegas-style magic show, this is a fulfillment 
of prophecy and a show of power to display who he is. If you've ever been in, in a situation in which you've seen two men and their testosterone level gets high and they're about to engage in fisticuffs, okay? All right? That's a funny way of saying about to fight. And we're in this situation and somebody says, I am going to wail on you and destroy you. Another person says, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to wail on you and destroy you. Then the other person picks up a phone book and rips it in half. I'm out of that fight. Because they displayed that they have the power to back up what they say, right? Jesus, in doing the miraculous things, is coming as a display of power, showing who he is. And they're still demanding signs. He's like, did you not? You followed me because of bread. Took a happy meal and fed the multitudes. How can you see this and not believe? How can you see the beautiful, holy one of God and not believe? And the answer is the human condition is full of pervasive unbelief because of a dead heart. And Jesus explains that in this passage because he explains who he is as the bread of life. As the bread of life, we've already seen Jesus as the bread of life in verse 35 that he satisfies all hunger. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger or thirst anymore. We've also seen Jesus say as the bread of life, Jesus, he never casts out those who come to him. So if you, I have, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is in verse 36. All, the, all who the Father give me will come to me and all who come to me, I'll never cast them out. So he's this bread that can be had by anybody. In, verse, in, this, in verses 38 through 40 of this same chapter, Jesus is the bread of life. We talked about this last week. Who does the will of the Father? And what's the will of the Father? That the Son might be raised up and everyone who believes on him would have life. And Jesus would keep him to the end. And then we see in this, the sections today, in verse 41, we see in their grumbling that Jesus, as the bread come down from heaven, display, displays who he is. And if you see, if you look down in verse 41, it says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. So what is their, they, they're grumbling and complaining. Can you believe he said that? Can you believe he said that? Can you believe that? It's like a small town, right? <laughs> Can you believe what so-and-so did? If you have to say, can you believe this? You're probably gossiping and you should probably stop. That's free. Okay. Secondly, we see this. They're grumbling and they're complaining. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42 says, is, this, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? They, Jesus, when he is saying he is the manna or he is the bread come down from heaven, he is referring to Back to the Old Testament story in Exodus. You remember God saved the people out of Israel? And how did he sustain the people while they were out in the, in the desert? Which is not known. Deserts aren't known for their plenteous food supply. He sent bread every morning from heaven called manna. And he is saying here that Jesus is this bread come down from heaven. Jesus has corrected a statement earlier, and he said that people thought Moses gave the bread. Moses didn't give the bread. Who gave the bread? God gave the bread. Now he's correcting this understanding that, remember, the manna came from heaven. And just like that, 
I come from heaven. I have come down from my Father. And in saying where he's from, he's showing who he is. So many of us define our identity by where we're from, right? Friday night was a good example of that. People wearing purple and gold show up. That's who we are. We're the jacket. Some different parts of the country. Like some of you, much too many of your eight displays. I am from Florida. And I went to this land flowing with milk and honey for school called Gainesville, Florida. And there's a team there that I love. And many of you hate them, okay? And some of you right now just want to hit me. And I understand that, okay? And I want you just to think about that. So much of our identity is wrapped up in where we are from, right? For example, the grit. Not dirt, okay? Some of you are like, immediately when I say grit, it shows where you're from. If I say grits to most people in the South, they're like, mm, that's good, put some cheese on that, okay? You say grits to other people, they're like, grit? You want me to eat grit like dirt grit, like sand grit? Kind of, but not really delicious grit, okay? I was at a hotel with my wife on our anniversary, and there was these, these folks from, from a different part of the country, and um, they, they were... She was like, oh, honey, they have grits over here. It's, it's like cream of wheat. You should go. <laughs> this dude was about to put fruit and all sorts of stuff in his grits, and I had to stop it. Amy's like, just mind your own business, Matt. But I have this thing. When I walk in places, I got to be in somebody else's. And I got I'm over here and everything. And so I hear it, and I was like, hey, man, don't put fruit in your grits. That will be awful. <laughs> buttery, salty grits, and you're going to put fruit in that? No, you put cheese in that, because that's how we roll down here. Oh, he's like, thank you. It's like, this is not like cream of wheat. This is like butter sand, okay? It's, <laughs> don't. So much of our identity comes from who we are and where we're from, right? We think about that. I'm from this part of the country. We do these things. We have this type of personality. Now, that those are stereotypes, but that, for the most part, we take identity from these things. And when Jesus is saying he's the bread come, come down from heaven, he is saying that he is the Holy One of God, that he it has come down from heaven, that he is God in the flesh. And what the Jews fail to realize is the prophecies about Jesus and the reality of Jesus that Joseph was his adopted father, but God the Father was his real father. We see that in the other gospels, and we have eyewitness accounts according to that, that Jesus was born to a, or was conceived in, by a virgin, Mary. And in questioning where he's from right here, isn't this Joseph's son? How can he say he's come down from heaven? They're displaying unbelief. Now, I want you to know something. It is preposterous on some level, and the Bible even talks about this, that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's preposterous for us to think that a man was born without a sexual act being occurring. It's also preposterous for us to believe that a Jewish man was God in the flesh who died on the cross and was raised and is coming again. However, it would be preposterous if we didn't have so much eyewitness evidence and we didn't have the Spirit of God testifying to us that it is true. So what you think about it, it is, <laughs> if someone ever tells you belief is easy, it is not because pervasive unbelief is the default setting of our heart. And Jesus, and, and you, can, you, can, you can wonder, how can pervasive unbelief exist? They don't believe, and they have seen actual physical signs. How many times have you ever said, maybe if I could see what Jesus did, 
I'd believe more. They have actually seen, and yet they still don't believe. They have seen this man come around, and they're grumbling, and they're upset about this. And then we go down, and we see in verses 47 through 59, and I'm intentionally skipping some verses here, and we're going to come back to those. In verses 47 through 59, we see this about Jesus as the bread of life to see how beautiful he is. We see this. Jesus claims to be the source of all life, which is a huge claim. A huge claim by a, by a person who is walking around in flesh, that he is the source of all life. We see this go on in verse 47. Jesus continues on. He says, truly, truly, which is he's getting your attention. Hey, amen, amen. Listen, listen. This is true. I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Like, your life will not expire and then it goes on and says, I am the bread of life. So eternal life is related to the fact that he is the bread of life. Then verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. They didn't die immediately. Why didn't they die immediately? Because they had things to eat and water to drink that came out of rocks. But eventually they died, right? Just like every person everywhere dies. Mortality rate is certain, 100%. We like to write songs that we'll be forever young. Go just listen to pop radio. We like to write songs that we're going to be young forever. We like to write songs that we're going to live forever, and we like to act like we're going to live forever, but the facts are death is certain. Physical death is certain, and Jesus comes, and he says another preposterous thing, that he says that I'm the bread. The fathers ate the man in the wilderness, but they died. Verse 50 says, but this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is, he said, I'm the bread, I've come from heaven, I've been sent, and the God-man sent down. We know this from the very beginning of John's gospel. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the world was made through him. Remember all that? So he's actually the source of biological life. The world was made through Jesus. Secondly, we see he's the source of eternal life, that if you come to him, even though you physically die, if you come to him, he's saying there's life eternally. And then it goes on, he says in verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, the idea of living bread is obvious. This shows us again, he is using figurative language because the thought of living bread is scary. Could you imagine sourdough sitting on your kitchen, ta kitchen table and going, hey, man, it's a little humid in here. I'm going to develop mold. You would freak out if your bread started talking to you. Living bread, if you saw some bread was moving on your kitchen counter, that would be weird, right? He is saying, I am this living bread. I have come down. I am like bread. I am that kind of sustenance for you. And I have come. I'm living, came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that comes that we must eat is Jesus' flesh. Flesh, in this language, is a, it's, a, it's a very, it's a visceral world. It's a, it's a word that it has, it's a word that has a lot of physical elements to it. When you think of flesh, this meaty part of your body, he's going to eat my flesh. And then some, and then what he talks about, he talks about chewing his flesh, which is a weird image. And again, this is a hard saying. 
displayed by power that he's true because he's doing all these signs and wonders, showing he's true, but he's saying some really hard stuff. In verse 52, it says, And the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And I think a lot of us kind of do the same thing. Like, if somebody on the street, again, think about it, would you eat my flesh and you can have life? You'd be like, peace. I don't want any part of you. You're roadrunner in that thing, and you're out of there. You know, cloud of dust. That person's a weirdo. Remember, Jesus come with signs and wonders. He's showing this, and he's, he's talking about spiritual truth. The Jews, they dispute, like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which, to a certain extent, we can understand why they're so upset about this. In verse 53, so Jesus said to them, again, he wants to get their attention, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he goes from bread to eating flesh and now drinking blood. It's getting progressively strange, more and more strange. Stranger, stranger, there is the one. He goes on and he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus is making it abundantly clear to Come to him to believe in him, and believing here is also seen as eating his flesh, which means shows that this is some true belief here. That is the way to life. There is no other way to life, spiritual life, and eternal life than Jesus. And he's given the example of, the, of what happened in the wilderness that unless the Israelites had something to eat, some bread to eat, they were going to perish out in the desert. So they had to have this bread to eat. And if it didn't come every day from God, they were going to starve to death. But God gave them enough nourishment so that they might live. But Jesus is greater than that manna that was in the wilderness. Because the people who ate the manna in the Old Testament that came down every day, the bread that came down every day, they ate it and stayed alive for a while, but eventually they died. Jesus, in coming and saying he's the bread of life, he is saying, I am better than that manna. I am bread come down from heaven, which is a living bread, bread from God, God in the flesh, that if you believe in me, and you believe me to such a certain extent that belief is akin to food that you have to have to eat, to live, that's the type of belief he's talking about. It's not a mental ascent to a bunch of facts and religious figures. It's saying, I believe you so much. You're my sustenance. If I don't have you, Jesus, I don't have life. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about eating here. If that's not the case, I don't have spiritual and physical, I don't have physical, spiritual, or eternal life if I don't have Jesus. So I want you to, as something I posed to you the other day, for most of us, bread is the add-on to the meal. You sit down at a Mexican restaurant, they bring you tortilla chips, which is essentially some type of bread fried, okay? And we all like fried bread. If you don't think you like fried bread, go to Krispy Kreme. That is fried bread covered in glaze. That is what we like, okay? It's good, okay? It's not good for you, but it's good to you. We go down to a Mexican restaurant, what do they do? They sit down chips and salsa, that's bread and and a form of bread right there. Go to another restaurant, you go to Logan's, you go to some other ones, what are they going to do? Would you like some bread? Most people <laughs> don't turn it down, but it's not the main course. 
But in a society like this, this was the way to be sustained. And I want to be very clear that Jesus is claiming exclusivity. He is the only way. You can't have Jesus in anything else. It's only Jesus to, to have life. That is a very uncomfortable statement for our culture because it wants to say there are many ways to be okay, and how dare you speak into my truth. I am proposing to you that Jesus said there is no other truth but me. So the idea of, like, find my truth, that is preposterous. He is this beautiful God-man come to the earth to provide for us, to, to fulfill all of our longings, to be our source of life. And he shows by coming from heaven, just like the manna, that he is from God. There is no one greater, no one better. And he is showing this with signs and wonders. But a question persists. Why, how could people not believe in this beautiful Jesus who's performing these signs and wonders? Certainly you would think he was, he's backing up what he's saying. He's saying, I'm God, let me show you. I make bread out of nothing. I, I can take this and multiply it to feed thousands. He turned water into wine. He brought life out of nothing. He's done all of these different miracles. He's made blind people see. He's done all of these things to show he is this, but yet they don't believe. And they saw it, like, with their eyes. In physical time, they don't believe. How can they go on with unbelief? And this passage answers that question for us, how they can go on in unbelief. If you would, go back to those pe that section I told you that we need to look at, which is verse 43 of John 6. Remember? They're grumbling, right? And complaining. And Jesus says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. They don't believe. They've seen the signs. They've heard his testimony. They don't believe. And Jesus says to them in verse 43, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And I want to focus again on verse 44 that Jesus says this. And these are hard words, but these are true words. And if you can grasp the relevance of this, it can change your life and your view of God and salvation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me. One of the arguments against Jesus being the Messiah would be, well, then why, do, why doesn't all the people of Israel believe? And the answer can be seen in several passages of Scripture, especially this one, but go back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, what is the verse in John chapter 3 that everybody puts on signs and everything? Don't, uh, listen, I can't hear you up here. It's like, is this across the world? Okay, come on, let me hear it. Come on, who's got it? It was good at first to trail off. It's fine. Yeah, you know what? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. I want to make sure you're because, you know, this is important. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. But do you know something? That passage is preceded 
by a man who knows the scriptures named Nicodemus coming to Jesus completely confused about his life. And he approaches him and he says, what must I do to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And he is totally and utterly dumbfounded by that because he's taking this overly literally. And he goes, do you mean, and this is in the Bible, okay? Do you mean that I need to crawl back into my mother and literally be born again? Praise God, that is not what Jesus meant. Not what he meant at all. And he says, how do you not understand this? And he's speaking to a larger spiritual truth that the main problem with humanity is not that we're bad, it's that we're dead. Because of our sins, we are dead to God. The Bible talks about this in Ephesians, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. The book of Romans talks about it. Paul talks about we've all sinned, we've all strayed, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned, and therefore we are physically dead. We're not physically, we are spiritually dead, and we will die physically. And then we will die eternally apart from Jesus. And so that is the idea that we are spiritually dead. Dead people can't do anything. I know that's an overly reductionistic idea, but go to a funeral. If you want to be real awkward, walk down in the casket and tell the person in there to get up. Please don't do this, by the way. That's going to ruin, that's going to ruin the day, okay? That's already ruined, okay? If you were to decide to scare the person in the casket, ah! they will lay there dead. Why? Because they're dead. They're deceased. You could show them the most beautiful painting, play them the most beautiful song, and you know how they respond to that? By being dead, which is to not respond. And that is the nature of our spiritual condition, and it give, has this symptom of pervasive unbelief. Since our first parent's sin, which was basically not believing God and trusting him that he was good and he knew better, our, our sin has continued. Spiritual death has gone on for all of Adam's children, and we are in sin and death apart from him, and we have no spiritual means to believe on our own. That's why Jesus said you must be born again to see the kingdom. And that's why he says here, these people are grumbling, complaining, and there's unbelief all around, and he is, he's, he, he's not taken back or surprised by unbelief. And the unbelief is not because Jesus isn't powerful. The unbelief is, the, is part of the human condition, which is a symptom of our spiritual death. Therefore, when Jesus says, don't grumble. And he says these words, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's not taken aback by why they don't believe. He understands why they don't believe, and he is giving a reason why they don't believe. Left to our own devices, we will never come to God on our own, and we can't come to God on our own. You are dead. You cannot respond to the beauty. The answer to that question, when I saw the heartbeat of my son for the first time, the answer to that question is, how can you not believe in God? Is because I'm dead in my sins. People are dead in their sins. And it takes the very God 
who made them to open their, open their hearts and minds and make them new again to live. And so Jesus says, no one, who, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he goes on to make sure he's, that you understand it. In verse 44, it says, or verse 43, 5, I'm sorry, it says, It is written in the prophets, and this is Isaiah 54, he, 13 he's quoting, And they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is a larger series of prophecies which talk about the new coming of the Lord. And when this has happened, used to be people were taught by people. Now, in the new day, people be taught by God. And we have other prophecies in which you see that, that de- you see dead hearts being replaced, hearts of stone being replaced with hearts of flesh. You see in the book of Ezekiel that, that Ezekiel's told to prophesy, preach the word to a bunch of dead bodies, dry bones. And what happens? The word of God through the spirit of God makes the bones live. This is all throughout the Bible that you can't come to God on your own. But now... Some of us in the room are saying, now wait a second. Let's go back up and look at verse 37 of this passage. In verse 37 of John 6, he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Okay, think about this. If I come, I won't be cast out, and I'm told to come. And in other places, Jesus would say, believe in me. Believe that I am the bread of life. Believe. So there's two commandments. The commandments are believe and come, and I think they're, I think they're related to each other. They're almost the same thing. They're synonymous. Believe and come. So we're told to believe and come, but then we know this, that no one can come and believe unless the Father draws him. You know a house won't stand up unless there's tension. Think about that. You get the posts. Now, this is a very rudimentary, this is like lean-to, okay? If you wanted to know about a house that built, Roy and Mike would be glad to tell you, okay? Don't ask me. I didn't build mine, okay? What you got there is you have two sides of the house leaning in tension onto a support. And if the tension's not there, nothing stands up. It just falls over. And so I want you to see this. That you are called in the Bible. God commands you to do things you can't do. Like believe. Like repent. Like to see your sin because you're dead. And he calls you to come to him. You can't on your own. However, when you hear the word of God, the spirit of God works in you enables you to do something you couldn't do before and even gives you the gift of faith to believe it. That's where the tension comes to resolution. We are called to act, but we can't act unless we are called. A man by the name of Mark Dever writing about conversion, which we're talking about here is the new life, he said this, Jesus taught that we must act. We must believe, we must repent, we must come to him. But he also taught that we, can't, we can act only if God's actions were behind our own. I want you to get this. Salvation has nothing to do with you. 
It's not, I believe, it's not that you believed hard enough or you repented hard enough. The very believing and repenting is all the work of God. God does all the work of salvation so we can get none of the credit. In fact, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, what does it say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Apart from works, let's imagine the most. So even the faith that we, by which we receive salvation and even the repentance and conviction that comes to us is not our own doing. It is all from God. Oh, my goodness. Do you see that salvation is of God? If you come to him, if you've come to him, it's nothing that you've ever done. It's not because you were good. It's not because he saw that you would believe. It's because he set his affections on you and saw you in your, dead, your deadness. And he, through his word, he made you alive and even gave you the way to receive salvation, which was faith. I want you to say that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And all who come never cast out. This tension <laughs> is not really tension. It's just understanding that we are so dead that we can't come to God on our own. But now I want you to know something. Unbelief is all around us. And unbelief is all in this passage. If you go back up to um, John chapter 25 and 26, remember the people are looking for him, the crowd, and they find him, and, and what do they want from Jesus? Me need food. I saw a lady at Chick-fil-A the other day walk up to her son through the glass, and this is all she did. She was like, okay, which I took to mean you want something to eat, okay? I understood that, all right? And I was kind of watching it. People probably are like, this guy's creepy. He's like watching and hearing our conversations. I probably am, okay? Pray for me. All right, so there was this situation that's like, I eat. I need to eat. And that's what these people were doing. They were like, yeah, yeah, get through your talking. Mm-mm, I want more bread. And Jesus told, tells them, don't. Your desires are low and base, and that is one of the ways unbelief is seen in our, in our world, and we have those things. We see the crowd, one of the groups here, they didn't believe because, in essence, they were, only, they were aloof to God. They didn't care, and they only were interested in God as what he could give them and how he could provide for them, and their desires were really base. We see the Jews, for example. Remember in these passages, they're grumbling, complaining, disputing, getting upset and agitated at Jesus. Like, how can he say he came down from heaven? How can he say, give us his flesh to eat? I can't. They are antagonistic and angry. And some of the people, some of the way unbelief expresses itself is anger towards God, anger towards the things of God, hostility towards the things of God. And sometimes you may have experienced that before, before you became a believer, or sometimes you may be experiencing that now, or sometimes someplace you may see somebody who's unbelief and spiritual deadness, it, it results in anger coming out. Like, for example, you invite somebody to church, and they're like, oh, believe in God. Sorry, man. It's like if you, went, if you invited someone to the movies. Like if I said, hey, Clint, go to the movies. Be a little bit of overreaction. Like, hey, Clint, you want to go to the movies with me? No, I don't go to movies. Jerk. Wouldn't that be a little bit of an overreaction? Wouldn't see that. That is part of unbelief. It's seen in this passage. Finally, I want you to go down, and I want you to look in verse, in verse 52. And it says this, and the Jews, let's see. Actually, go down to verse 60, I'm sorry. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, 
man, this is a hard saying. Remember, he's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, and there's the disciples. So now we got three people, three, three groups of people we see here, okay? The first group are the crowd who they just want food, okay? Their unbelief expresses itself in like, hey, we don't care about you, Jesus. We just need what you give us. The second crowd is the Jews. They're angry. They're, they're not getting what they want. Their unbelief is in host- there's hostility there, and there's unbelief. And then the third group is this group called the disciples. Now, these are different from the 12, okay? But if you look here, the disciples in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said this, man, this is a hard saying. Eat your flesh, drink your blood. I don't get this. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself, now look at this. This shows that what I'm talking about, that verse 44 is imperative in this passage, and that is the purpose. Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense to this? Jesus is pointing out their unbelief. The unbelief is not taking Jesus by surprise, and he's explaining the nature of unbelief here. And this is to the group called the disciples. Remember, you got the Jews and you got the crowd, and you got this one group closer to Jesus that we're going to call the disciples. And Jesus sees that they're grumbling, like, "How? I don't understand. I don't like what he's saying." In verse sixty-two, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you saw me going back up to heaven, which will happen, but they hadn't seen it yet? In verse sixty-three, it is this, now. Listen, look in verse sixty-three. It is the Spirit who gives life. The Father draws, the Spirit draws, the Spirit gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew, from, listen, again, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I hear this a lot of times. How can people not believe? How can people not believe? Because they're dead. And the only reason you believe is not because you're a better person. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're more holy. It's not for any other reason except for God set his affections on you. You heard the gospel He drew you to himself. He made you alive, and he even gave you the faith and the conviction to receive. It is all of God. All of it. We don't contribute one single bit to our salvation. Unbelief should not take us by surprise. In fact, belief should take us by surprise. And what happens with these people? Verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned away and walked no longer with him. Now, they are called disciples. Do you know what that means? They are signified with the people who are following him. And this is one of the most dangerous forms of unbelief. The most dangerous form of belief, I think, is the person who claims to be a disciple, yet has not been born again. The disciple is interested. They're interested. They show up. They listen to the teachings of Jesus. They like Jesus. They're even on board with it. They would even somewhat be devoted to Jesus because they're following around, and they would be devoted enough to be called disciple, okay, which means follower, okay? Not only that, they want, but here's their problem. Here's their greatest problem is they want faith on their own terms, And Jesus is the one saying, if you don't come to me and eat my flesh and drink my blood, which you trust me so much that I am your only sustenance, you can't come to me. Unless the Father draws, you can't come to me. Unless you see him as beautiful, you cannot come. And you have not come. 
this is so dangerous because there's so many people. And if this is you, I, I, I hope you understand that this is a place with open doors, and we want you to come, okay? We want anybody and everybody to come. We have people that have been coming for years, and I don't even know where they stand with Christ, but I want you to know this. If you're thinking that you are saved just because you give a head nod, just because you affirm that Jesus, all the facts about Jesus, if you aren't devoted to him and following him, you are not regenerate. That means you're not alive. You have not been granted the new life because to, G, to come to Jesus and to believe in Jesus is to receive him and eat his flesh like, like it is your only source of life. And I say this with you, the most dangerous place you could be is interested and even semi-devoted to Jesus, but not really loving him because the disciples thought they were okay until Jesus said, you have to come to me and eat my flesh. And they were like, okay, this was cool. I liked you being the Messiah. I liked you feeding us. I even liked most of your teachings. I thought it was really good. I even liked how you stick it to the Jews of the day. You were sticking it to the man. I liked that, Jesus. But then you say stuff like this. I can't handle that. So they leave. He's going to say worse stuff than this. Like, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you have no place with me. He would tell people, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my Get that. Follow me. That's harsh. My Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus wouldn't say that. He would say, okay, go bury your father, watch a Care Bears video, and come back to me. Okay? The problem with that is that's the Jesus of your own understanding, and that and a quarter couldn't buy you like a, an eighth of a percent of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. It's worth zilch. Now, I want, you to, I want to see, show you this at the very end. This, the fact that we can't contribute into anything to our salvation is seen in the belief of the 12 minus the 1, Judas. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave? These folks just left. The Jews are mad. The crowd didn't get their food. They're not happy. The disciples who are walking around, they can't stand what I'm saying. Or you want to leave too, the 12? And verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The new birth and knowing that we can't contribute anything to our salvation produces allegiance to Jesus because we know he is the bread, the only way to have life. And there is no other game in town. There's not competing saviors. He is it. And the new birth gives us this ironclad faith that's continually growing. It's the work of the Spirit of God in which we continue to receive and we continue to repent of our sins. And we continue to believe and we become allegiant to Jesus. We say, yes, I pledge allegiance to Jesus. I'll live for you. I'll die for you. I'll take whatever you want. You can send cancer my way. It's for your glory. You can send distress my way. It's okay. I know you're working all things for my good. You can send good my way. I know I'm not going to idolize it. You know why? Because all good gifts come from you, and they point back to you, and you are my Lord. And if you had me give it up all today, I would, because I pledge allegiance to Jesus. 
And so that's what he says here. He, Peter, and, and we know another situation. Remember, they were at Caesarea Philippi, and he, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus say? Way to go. You're real smart. Way to figure that out on your own. What does he say? No, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father has revealed this to you, Peter. I want you to see if you believe it's because Jesus has sought you out, and, or God has sought you out and made you alive by the Spirit of God. It's nothing you could do. You don't add a thing to your salvation, and therefore he deserves all the allegiance because he's the only way, and it's a product of God if that's the case. Not only that, it results in not just allegiance but adoration, and we see this here. He says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In verse 69, we continue. He says, and we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God is an expression of worship. And and here's what understanding that your salvation is not your own does. It makes us supremely allegiant to Jesus. And it wells it wells up with us a, grat- a, gra- a gratitude and an adoration that we can't suppress for long periods of time. Now, there will be times where it's hard to praise God in the deep, dark moments and the dark nights of the soul, but the power of the Spirit and our new life and the Spirit coursing in us and remembering the truths of God will result in adoration. I think about this song that we sing regularly and one of my favorite songs that we sing. The, the, the verse goes, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And then the chorus explodes with hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And I would tell you something. We sang another song at camp this, this, this year that with the youth that it said this. It said, Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me over and over again. And I think I freaked our students out because we got to that. I never heard this song before. And that song came on, or they, the band started playing it, and they got to the chorus, and something just in the gut level up at me, like the sob was coming. And it just kind of moved up, and it got it right here, and then it exploded. And I'm like, there's a 33-year-old man just wailing, weeping at the worship service. is not cool, okay? I couldn't contain it. I couldn't explain it. I mean, it was just like the fact that he was everything to me and that he is enough and just proclaiming that just welled up in my soul. And it came out in this, it wasn't like crying, like, I'm so sad about this. I'm like, oh, how could you choose me? I am nothing, and all I really have is you, and we like to think we have other things. We like to think we have our health. That could be taken away. We like to think we have our family. That could go away. We like to think we have this or that, and I want you to know something, that if you have Christ, you may have nothing and have everything. And I want you to know this. This is controversial. It's biblical, but it's controversial. You don't add anything to your salvation. It's nothing that you could do. It's not because you believed enough. It's not because you, you, you know, were believing in the future and he chose you that way. It's just because of his great grace. And if you come to him by faith, it's all his doing. 
Now we really have to act. We really have to believe. We really have to repent. So we're not, we're not passive in this, but it's all the work of God. And this gives us allegiance. I pledge allegiance to Jesus. And this gives us adoration. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. At this point, Clint's going to come up. We're going to ask our team to come forward to do communion. And as we do that, as we pass out communion... I want you to think about this. I want some of you who, are, who, who may not be followers of Jesus to think about who Christ is, and I, I implore you to repent and believe. And if you can, it's because of his work in you. Secondly, many of us, we just need to sit here and look at these elements who represent the body and the blood of Christ, and we just need to sit here with hearts of gratitude and hearts that are ready to proclaim our allegiance to Jesus yet again.